This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I'd like to start this morning with just a show of hands. How many of you have already taken a vacation trip out of town this summer? No staycations, they don't count, okay? So out of town. Put those down. How many of you are going to take a vacation out of town? You just haven't done it yet, okay? And then how many of you are not going, but you wish you were? Okay, so that just about includes everybody here. And indeed, we're kind of in this season where we're coming a little bit out of our COVID hibernation, right, and, and wanting to go back out and explore the world. But something tells me that good, sensible suburbanites like you and me would not do your summer vacation the way two friends of mine, when they in their 20s in college, took a couple of extraordinary trips. Like number one, it was a friend of mine at Wheaton College, and as Wheaton College students are wont to do, you notice slow-moving freight trains trundling along the tracks, right? Maybe it's blocking the traffic where you're trying to go. And my friend grabbed another friend of his, and as that train trundled by and they saw an open boxcar, they hopped in. Now, just fair warning, okay, don't try this at home, right? This is dangerous and it's illegal, okay? So kids, don't do this, right? But here they are, a couple of college students in the freight car. And unfortunately, that freight car didn't just stop anytime soon. It just kept going and going and going. And it got dark and cold. And eventually, finally, in the middle of a godforsaken freight yard, it came, the train came to a stop, and they were in Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> you probably are not going to take that trip this summer. I'm willing to wager. Or maybe this other trip that a friend of mine took after he had had a study abroad semester in Jerusalem. He packed up the saddlebags to his touring bike, put on his backpack, and he just took off. Way, biking his way around the Mediterranean world, kind of like Barnabas and Saul. Wherever the Spirit led, he went. He stopped and he saw some friends, I don't know how many thousands of miles he biked, but it was weeks, months, that he was on this biking trip. All I know is I saw a picture of him with a big ZZ Top beard and really big, strong, muscular legs after this big ride. We suburbanites don't do that kind of thing, do we? Kind of the analogous thing would be like you packing up the minivan and saying, kids, let's get in the car, and where do you want to go? Grandma's? Cousins? Or maybe you go to O'Hare and you look and see, okay, what's the next flight? And how much money do I have? Okay, Iceland Air to Reykjavik. Yes. I guarantee you, you guys aren't going to do that this summer. I know I'm not. I don't like planning trips that way. In fact, my wife and I, we aren't going this summer, but we are planning a trip for the fall to Italy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you, you can bet I'm not planning it that way, right? You know, my, if you ask my wife, I've spent hours and hours poring over websites, searching for airfares, making phone calls, and doing all that. 
I got to admit, when I see a journey like Paul and Barnabas setting out, I get a little bit of this vibe, you know, that they heard the call of the Holy Spirit. And the call of the Holy Spirit is a little vague. It says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. What work is that? Luke is very capable of giving lots of detail. He was a doctor, and he was a man of details and facts, but he doesn't say he could have. And in fact, what happens next is this story unfolds. The church there at Antioch goes back to fast and pray some more. You get the sense because they really wanted to know and hear from the Lord what that work was. And eventually enough of a sense emerges because they send them out, and they then head to the port city of Seleucia. They hop a boat to Cyprus and to Barnabas's hometown of Salamis. <laughs> Almost a little bit like getting in the minivan and going to Grandma's, right? That's where they went. But I'll admit, I'm really not into that kind of planning. And I dare say many of us are the same way. We in our lives, practically, but truthfully also, in our lives before the Lord, would like things a good deal more spelled out than worship fast and pray, hear a word, and go. <laughs> we would like a lot more nailed down than that. Well, Acts 13 does challenge my traveling sensibilities and maybe yours too. But I'm here to tell you, this is a good thing. For if Barnabas and Saul's journey is in response to a somewhat open-ended call from the Lord, I'm here to tell you, they're in really good company. We now know in 2020 hindsight that this was, in fact, Paul's first great missionary journey. But if they did not know this and they still went, they are in excellent biblical company. They are right where the Lord wanted them to be, and there is, in fact, no safer place to be than that. So I want this morning to do two things. First, we're going to lay out kind of a big road atlas on the table. Do you remember those things? I don't even know if they exist anymore. Or maybe you get your Google map and you pinch out so you can zoom out and get a, get a bigger perspective. But we're going to get a bigger perspective here on what is this journey all about? Why is it that they set out with so much confidence and faith with still so much undetermined? So we're going to get clear on that perspective. And then we're going to zoom back in more specifically on Acts 13 because there's a whole lot of wisdom there on how this journey How the Lord wants us to do this journey well. The journey that Barnabas and Saul undertake is just the next phase in the journey of the people of God. And he's calling us into journey as well. But Acts 13 gives us a great, not a road map with all the itinerary spilled out, but gives us a great and gracious guide, the Holy Spirit, for our journey. Let's see how this goes. First, the journey. 
What is this bigger context? I want to take you back to a more ancient journey still, or at the very beginning phase, if you will, of the journey of the people of God. That one begins in Genesis 12. We read there in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Does this sound a little familiar? The land that I will show you? The work to which I have called you? <laughs> what land? <laughs> what work? Both of them are not very specific. But the Lord does go on, and he eventually shows Abram what that land is, the land of Canaan, but he goes and sends him there with this promise. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. The Lord states a promise here, a very definitive one, that through Abram and his many descendants, the Lord will bless the nations. And the Lord does pro uh, promise that specific place, the land of Canaan. But that's then where things get a little bit fuzzy on Abram's journey. For instance, he arrives on the threshold of Canaan only to see it inhabited by others, by Canaanites and Perizzites. Then a famine drives them to Egypt, and still upon their return, Canaanites and Perizzites. And yet the Lord repeats his promise, and we are told that Abram believes. He receives the Lord's promise in faith. This is really going to happen, Abram. And what's interesting throughout this account in Genesis, each time that the Lord reiterates this promise, Abram receives it in faith, and you know what he does? He erects an altar, and he worships. He bows down, and he worships before the Lord. Other details of this journey are also far from clear. Here's a really big one, as it turns out. As you might recall, Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren and past childbearing years. Abram has no heir. So how on earth will God achieve this great work through his descendants? Stop and think about it. It's a pretty reasonable question. Lord, how exactly are you going to do this with a 90-year-old postmenopausal wife? I'm not really clear on that point. And Abram and Sarai, sadly, at a later point in the journey, decide to take matters into their own hands. Their faith wavers a little bit. The key point here is this. Most of the practical details are not worked out at all. The kinds of things you and I might really like worked out, God does not reveal to Abram as he sets out on this journey. But, as the writer of the book of Hebrews states, who some believe was Barnabas himself, in chapter 11 he says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Yes, the Lord did reveal the eventual destination, but there was not much more than that. 
You see, God's great promise to Abram here launches the people of God on a great journey. And it's the great biblical theme here of the people of God seeking a home, but the God that we serve doesn't just take us to a home. He also then sends us out. There's a home, a call to home, and then a mission to the ends of the earth. Because you see, through Abraham, as God promised, he is going to make his descendants as abundant as the sands of the sea. This great journey is the journey of the Lord God seeking out lost humanity and drawing us back to himself. And what Abraham doesn't realize is actually the most crucial piece of the journey of all. That the way that God is going to reconcile us to him is through his only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All that Abraham gets is a little tiny foretaste of that when the Lord calls him to do this seemingly preposterous thing of sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Once he's born, now what? Sacrifice him. But the Lord speaks and intervenes. He offers a substitute sacrifice. Sound kind of familiar? Kind of what, like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is eventually going to do. And all that he gets is a tiny foretaste. We celebrate all this during our Holy Week, right, with the great story of God's deliverance and the apex of this in Jesus Christ and his wonderful saving work. But in between our tough chapters, tough chapters that included Jewish exile from the homeland to where now when you fast forward generations later, you have a devout Jew like Barnabas growing up on the island of Cyprus? That's their first stop on their trip back to his synagogue. Or Paul, a devout Jew in Tarsus, which is today modern-day Turkey, not in the promised land. But yet somehow, beautifully, mysteriously, the Lord God is weaving all of this together bringing these two men, Barnabas and Saul, to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And now we stand poised right here on Acts 13 where the next great moment in this journey is about to take place. He's sending them out to gather in the nations, not just Jewish believers in Jesus, but now Gentiles. That's what's going on. Have you, in your stretch on God's journey, ever had an experience like me of not having all the details of that journey really well laid out? <laughs> and it's kind of frustrating, kind of hard, maybe even kind of maddening with a few moments of shaking your fist at God. My journey into pastoral ministry began way, way back. I may not look that old, but it was a long time ago. I was born with a whole host of cardiovascular defects and had two open heart surgeries by the age of four. 
And it was out of that that I came to really know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and received this call to pastoral ministry. You know, it didn't happen then on the normal timetable. There was a detour through a thing called getting a Ph.D. and becoming a professor. I went back and talked at my alma mater or something I swore I never would do. But back at Wheaton College, I met my wife and got a wonderful son. And only through that experience, we helped plant a church. And that was how the Lord eventually raised me up, ordained me at the ripe old age of 42. So if some of you think, God, your plan's taken a long time to incubate, I don't know. I got a resume to compare with you. And I came here to tell you, actually, that God's goodness is more real today to me through every one of these moments of hardship where the road is unknown. He's brought me to a place eventually where I could receive even the unknown as a gift from him. And to have that kind of faith like Abram does it transforms every situation you've ever been in. It couldn't be more different. And you know, you think about it, we as a church right now are in a similar situation. We're on a journey, and there's a lot of unknowns around us. Maybe you two are frightened and wish we had a better roadmap for where things are going. I know in my ministry work in Oak Park, I wish I did too. But we have the witness here of Abram, and I'm here to proclaim in the assembly the goodness of the Lord, that we can look back on the story of even this church, of our years of sojourn, right, doing church in a high school, and then being brought into this place and given this wonderful home, a home base from which we send out other people on mission, just like we did last week. The Lord has been good to this church, and he's not going to stop now. Amen? That's the great story here, because we can look back at the story of Scripture and be consoled by the fact that the promise he gave to Abraham was fulfilled. And it has been fulfilled in our lives and will be. And that's why Barnabas and Saul could launch out on this crazy thing, hop on a boat, start a journey without an itinerary all sketched out in advance. We're all a part of that. And that's good news. Not something to be afraid of, not something to try to grab a hold of and plan for yourself. Second point, let's take a look at trip planning according to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let's let the Holy Spirit be our travel guide, if you will. That seems to be the underlying message or theme here in Acts 13, because what we see as a church at the very beginning in those first verses, they are gathered in worship, fasting, and prayer. And it's there out of that sense of their dependence and prayer before the Lord that the Holy Spirit calls out and sets apart Barnabas and Saul, and then they go back to prayer and fasting, and he sends them out. 
And he sends them out, as we see in the course of these verses, with great power, filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with themselves and their own ambition, but with the Holy Spirit. There are, I think in this passage, two great visions, two pictures, if you will, of how to go on the journey that we're all a part of. One's a good vision, and one's a not-so-good vision. Let's start with the good vision first, because we could use some good news. And the bad vision, well, we hope to avoid that one. The good vision is that vision steeped in the life of the church. Worship, fasting, and prayer. It's a posture here when you think about it, what worship, fasting, and prayer always is, is it is a living expression of our dependence upon the Lord, right? When we worship and sing, we are proclaiming and glorifying the Lord as King. Right? I even in the first service after preaching this sermon, I was so blessed by our music ministry, and I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is where in the midst of uncertainty I belong is right here, worshiping the Lord. And it's transformative. Fasting, right, is that taking away of food and energy to where you might maybe just realize your creaturely dependence upon the one who actually gives you good sustenance. And prayer is always just that open-handed posture before the Lord. I can tell you through many long and winding roads to bring me to this day, <laughs> that one of the greatest things the Lord ever showed me was this very prayer gesture, that as I kneel in prayer, I often hold my hands out because when it's unknown, it's often really hard to wait open-handedly before the Lord, isn't it? And to just be able to receive whatever He has. But so I do this partly just physically uh, just sacramentally to incarnate this gesture, Lord, I'm here to receive. And again, my testimony to you is, friends, if you do that, the Lord will speak. The Lord speaks. I know every time I sit down to prepare a sermon, I start out usually with like, Lord, I got no clue. <laughs> the only place where I find a clue is right here. I don't find it by all the study and whatever else. I mean, that helps, but it's mainly here. And we as a church have experienced this as well, haven't we? As we gather in worship, the Lord does speak and has spoken to us time and again. I was reminded how the Lord speaks to his church gathered in prayer when the church where I'm serving in Oak Park, they had a dramatic and powerful moment of prayer in this little tower in the church where the Lord spoke, spoke powerfully, actually, through Archbishop Ben Kwashi, who was there. Eyes went wide open and said, you must buy this building and plant this church. And it's a powerful vision. A few weeks ago, I was back up there praying, and it was like the Lord again spoke and said, pray. <laughs> because we as a church, they're in an interim phase we need to gather, and we need to pray. 
Think about that individually and personally, corporately. Our posture in worship and in prayer is that key ingredient. That is how and when the Holy Spirit speaks and moves. And if you want any power whatsoever, it's going to come there. Nowhere else. And I can tell you that because we see the contrast now, final point, in the person that Saul and Barnabas encounter on the other side of the island of Cyprus as they move over to Paphos. The story there is a curious one. It might be that they encountered Bar-Jesus first in the synagogue because in Paul's missionary journeys, they would always go first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, go into the synagogue and proclaim the gospel. So maybe they there encountered Bar-Jesus, who we are told is a Jewish false teacher. But somehow Bar-Jesus also has a connection with the Roman proconsul. And maybe part of the reason why in the beginning of Acts 13, the name of a man by the name of Menaean is mentioned is that Menaean has connections to the court of Herod the Tetrarch. So who knows, maybe Menaean actually made a little handshake there for Paul and Barnabas to meet this Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus. We just don't know. But what we do know is that this man Bar-Jesus, who actually is in possession as a Jew of this great story, the great journey of the people of God, he knows the story of the coming of the Messiah. He could be telling the Roman proconsul that to where when Barnabas and Saul roll into town, he's ready because we're told that he's a man of intellect. He's clearly searching. He wants to know. But what is Bar-Jesus, sorcerer's name, Elymas, doing instead? He is conjuring and divinizing, trying to find spiritual power, in this case, to manipulate the proconsul for his own end and to lead him astray, lead him into darkness. Because as Barnabas and Saul proclaim the good news, he tries to turn him against him. It's a lie. Don't believe it. What a tragedy. We have here another vision, right, of what doing the journey the wrong way looks like. <laughs> Bar Jesus could have the tremendous power of the Holy Spirit through the saving blood of Jesus, but instead he conjures the elemental powers. He's trying to do magic tricks. And instead of being humble and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, it's more like he's taking the knowledge he has and he's grasping after more power and trying to do it all on his own. Our son is an athlete, and occasionally I have to remind him when he is in the heat of competition, if maybe he gets a little overconfident or is maybe losing a little focus, I will say this to him. It's time to get humble and to get hungry. Get humble and get hungry. That is what we, the people of God, do when we are prayerfully laid out before the Lord. We are humble and we're hungry. But what you see by contrast here in Bar-Jesus 
is somebody who's not humble at all. And so his hunger is not for the Lord, for the presence of the living God in him that could make all the difference in his life. His hunger is for power, for more power, and to lead people astray into darkness. Let's be honest here. We all, at one point or another, are kind of like that, that we want to grab on rather than let go, right? That we want instead the power and the influence without the humility. And we hunger for things that are not of the Lord. I would encourage you this morning, wherever you're at, where's that place where maybe you're holding on? (laughs) Where maybe you're thinking, I got this, Lord. (laughs) But yet you need to open up I need to be humble and hungry, truly, to hunger and thirst after him and his presence, like Barnabas and Saul, who in the very course of this narrative gets a new name, Paul. And we as a church can do the same. We could do no better than what we are trying to do in Oak Park, what many of us gather anyhow to do, but we need to be on our knees before the Lord, searching and asking with humble and hungry hearts for every good thing that the Lord has in store. He will give it to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.